think we're going to see more and more like innovation, like more innovative contracts. Most people are just thinking of NFT art as, you know, images and video just being tokenized. But there's a whole realm of data-based art that is yet to be explored, I think. You know, I think Artblocks is a good example of that. You know, Artblocks is, you know, it's a render that takes data to generate generate the images, right? And so like, that's like one example. But I think we're just going to get more and more deeper, right? And so imagine you could start having like entire programs beyond the blockchain itself that are able to generate kind of like really unique art experiences. NFTs and all my crypto is green. I'm watching Gary V on TV. What do you mean? She wear Gucci and Louis, but her favorite Celine. My old school is old, but I keep that clean. Hello, everyone. GM. On today's show, we had Richard, co-founder of Manifold. Manifold empowers digital creators with tools and applications, enabling true creative sovereignty and the ability to create innovative NFT experiences for their audiences. We talk about a bunch of topics, including Richard, the intern account, and the story behind it, identity in Web3, why you should deploy your own contract instead of minting on third-party services, POAP, $10 million offer to buy Richard's Punk, and other topics like Web3 and Burning Man. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Okay, let's start with the most important question. What's the story behind Richard Intern, man? Yeah, so Richard Intern showed up one day. I was on Twitter and all of a sudden this like Richard Intern account popped up and started delivering me coffee. And I was like, cool. I thought it was just like you know, some sort of fan. I thought it was actually one of my friends who just like created this as a joke. But yeah, so I just interacted with it, uh, with the account for a while. And then day in day, he started also delivering more coffee and just like showing up every single day with these like Twitter coffee tweets. Uh, and I was like, that's cool. And, and so I just played into it and they eventually created this whole thing called like the Richard, like Richard three DAO. And uh, the funny thing is more, more intern kind of parody accounts just started showing up. Right. So we had Richard intern, intern, Richard COO, Richard's boss, Richard's 3d glasses or 604 cigarette. And it's really funny because they all started like talking to each other. And so I put them all in a chat one time and we started talking. It is really interesting because they were all non. And so like nobody knew who each other was. I still thought they were like, you know, people I knew in my network or just like friends just playing around. But it's really kind of like wholesome at first because they were just like, just, you know, just having fun with it. And so this happened. So yeah, then all of a sudden, like Richard Intern started making these videos and there was just like super high production value. And at that point I was like, whoa, this is not anyone I know, right? Because it was just like, no one had this amount of time to like dedicate that towards that or that year. And eventually, it actually wasn't until like earlier this year that they like messaged me one day and said, we want to have a chat, like an actual video chat. And I was like, whoa, we're going to like reveal their identity to me. And I found out that it was four guys from Latvia. And oh, they were oh, just from, from, from Latvia. Okay. Yeah. And so one day there was this, like one of the guys was like, I'm going to start a Twitter account and just want to have fun with it. And so he picked me as the account that he was going to pair, like, you know, just interact with and he created Richard Intern. And because I started like interacting with them, um, it just like, you know, there was a lot of fun. Right. But then, you know, this is actually before I became like really notable in web three. And then all of a sudden, you know, things started picking up. I became more and more notable through like, you know, manifold and all the work I'm doing. And then, you know, Richard intern was just there and just like his, his kind of following started blowing up too. And it just became part of the, the lore of, you know, of like my identity, my online identity of, uh, my crypto punk myself. That is amazing. And so, yeah. and- and so, so now, you, so what are these four guys? Because you said you add them in the chat, but were they 
Uh, did they know each other in the start or no? Or did they, or was it, or did they just meet up while? Oh, so, so, okay. So Richard Intern is four people. So Richard Intern yeah. is actually a collective of four people, but yeah. there are other, other persona accounts that are running different accounts Got it. that are also like independent of that. That is amazing. Yeah. So I know who runs two of the accounts. I don't know who runs the other two accounts. So that's still, still been a mystery to this day. Are you doing something? So are you, like, obviously you were, you know, like you were helping out, but are you, is there anything longer term, like building the lore? Are you working with them or anything like that or no? Uh, no, so I managed may to support them, right? They've been completely independent of, you know, my, my, myself and Manifold. And it's really just this, this cool kind of meme account that we've just been playing off each other and just to, like, uh, for fun. You know, I did, I did, I did bring him into Manifold to do some production stuff for our, April, for our one year anniversary, right? So they made this, uh, whole video about, so Manifold's anniversary is on April 1st, which is April Fool's. And so they, we made this whole like funny April Fool's joke or we renamed the company to Manifoldal and changed it to a gas station with offers like low gas prices. And so yeah, they had, they did a whole like video, of, uh, they did a whole video for that. And, you know, it's just a lot of fun working with them. Yeah, that's super fun. And they're very talented too. Like it's actually, those videos yeah. are like really high quality and it's, it's, the content is actually funny. Like it's, it's, you know what, while I was reading about it, reading the, the threads and I was like, man, this is so cool because I was, I was learning, I was reading about this the other day, someone mentioning that, you know, in today's world, it's not just the brand, you know, it's more like, uh, sorry, like old legacy brands are all about like, you know, you know, now it's more the content is part of, your brand persona in this quote unquote influencer economy moving on. Right. And, yeah. and, and it's hard to be like, you know, unique and, and have good content and funny content that engages people. And, and the content is just absolutely beautiful, especially in the crypto space where it's all about like just money and speculation and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so very cool. Um, moving on. How is, how is Burning Man, by the way? Uh, Burning Man's great. Yeah. So it's, uh, this was actually my fifth time going back to Burning Man. And so I started in 2015, I think, was my first one. Yeah, went to, and I actually built a sculpture in 2018. So it was this big, giant, like, LED lit up dragonfly. Uh, I think, like, 20 by 15 feet, by 15 feet tall. And, yeah, ended up burning it on, the final, on one of the days of Burning Man. So that was fun. Very cool. But, yeah. And, and is, is, have you seen, like, you know, because I, I know a lot of people, like, again, and I, like, you know, I knew that a lot of people from like, the Valley used to go to Burning Man, but... Are you seeing a different kind of vibe with like a lot of crypto NFT people at Burning Man? Is, you, is anything you picking up or is it more like just like not, not no work, just more like fun and relationships and just uh, exploring? I did not talk to a single person at Burning Man NFT or crypto. I love that. that yeah. So it was just, yeah, but it was really funny because there was this one art piece there that it was a big wooden sculpture, right? And it was just a, a big wooden sign, right? And it just said NFTs question mark in wood. And that was the only kind of reference to like NFTs when I was there. Wow. I would have expected to be much more. It's in interesting. Just, uh, yeah, I, I think it probably would have been if I would have searched for it more, but you know, I think for me it's like, you know, one part of the big thing about Burning Man is just like living in the moment and just like being part of the experience itself. Right. And I feel like when you go to Burning Man, you kind of leave a lot of who you are in the real life behind, uh, you know, and when you go there, it's just like, you're just very, very present in everything going on. Right. And so, it's, I think it's one of the benefits of there is you can just completely decompress, you know, really just focus on, you know, being in the moment, experiencing everything going on there and just like really living for what, living in this like very unique place because, you know, the whole, whole concept behind Burning Man is you go to the desert, there's nothing there, you build a city, 
And then you live in that city for a week and then you tear it down and leave no trace. And like, you know, all you have left you with you are, you know, the memories of the experience that, ha- that happened there. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's interesting though, we kind of talk about different personas, like, you know, like punk, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's one of your personas, but it's actually interesting to think about, but even the Burning Man is one of your different persona where you want to be away from the everyday world, like, you know, your, whether it's your work or whether it's your like personal life and it's a whole different persona for you, right? I wonder, yeah, you know, if, I was, you know, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I would say so. Like, you know, one of the whole things about Burning Man is that no one really cares about what your name is or where you're from or what you do. It's just, you're there as a person you know, experiencing these sort of like very similar experiences with somebody, right? And you just live in, like I said, you just live in the moment there. Like there's so many people I got like really close to and got to know, but just have no idea, you know, what their real lives are like, you know, it's just not part of, you know, it's just part of the culture of Burning Man. Makes sense. Uh, talking about the personas and identity, I, I heard you say on one of the uh, shows that, you know, all identity should be contracts. Um, you know, multiple people, eventually multiple people should be able yeah. to access the contract, example, a brand. I would, I would love if you can unpack that and kind of talk about how do you think about identity mm-hmm. in general? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think one of the big risks, or I guess one of the big concepts we have in Web3 right now is that your wallet address is your identity. And so most times it's a one-to-one thing. It's like, you know, I have this wallet address, that wallet address is mine. And on top, you know, things like ENS has done a good job of putting a layer, layer of abstraction on top of that to say, I have an ENS, that's my identity. I can point that identity to any other wallet address. And this, it does it does a mapping of, you know, ENS address to a wallet address. But, you know, the thing for me is, and I think most other people is, a lot of people have multiple wallet addresses. You know, they use it for different purposes. You know, like I have my own personal account, I have a manifold account, I have a vault address. They're all me, but I can only map one sort of, you know, name identity to that address. And, you know, on top of that too, in some cases, identity is kind of multifaceted. And so, for example, Manifold. You know, Manifold is a collective of people who are building software tools uh, for creators in Web3. But, you know, Manifold isn't just one person or just one thing. It is all of us that that are part of the company. And so, you know, one of the things is that, you know, there is no one wallet address that is able to encapsulate that because we need multiple access to, you know, different different parts of, to different, to different parts of the, of, you know, the things that are under custody in, in, the, in the company. And an example of, you know, that I've experienced firsthand is working with some of these other companies out there. And so when you set up a wallet address, the big thing is that you have a seed phrase and the seed phrase is, you know, the, the, pretty much the keys to the kingdom. And so, you know, sometimes I'll work with like a CFO or a CTO or sometimes the CEO and I'll be like, look, this is the seed phrase that you have to keep secret, you know, from everyone. And you know, whoever has a seed phrase is able to have full access to his wallet indefinitely for the future. And so the thing about a company though, is that individuals in the company are transient, right? So that CFO or CTO who may be here now may not be there in 10 years from now, but the identity that has been built up within the wallet itself, you know, could accrue a ton of value, right? And it pretty much could be the whole brand at, at some point. And so, you know, what could happen is that, you know, this person could transition away from the company and now they have to tra- transfer the seed phrase on somebody else, which creates a big security risk because at that point now you have way more exposure. You're not supposed to share a seed phrase to anyone who shouldn't have access to it. And if someone leaves, you know, an organization, they really shouldn't have access to the seed phrase anymore, but there's no guarantee that they don't have access to it. So, you know, you can imagine someone, you know, 10, 20 years from now comes back and like, oh, what's this, what's this piece of paper that has these words on it? Like, oh yeah, I set up the seed phrase from 20 years ago and, you know, they, they would go check it out and like, wow, this this has really grown in value. And so they would have access to it just completely. Like, you know, 
And so I think the proper way to think about, you know, addresses and identity is that a wallet that we can't, that we, they know it today should just be an access key to an identity. And what you can do is you can create a contract that then represents your identity. Then you can add or remove, you know, addresses onto that contract to say, say, uh, who has access to, you know, certain features of that within that wallet itself, right? And it's kind of like NosaSafe, but, you know, I, I'm thinking of, you know, I think the way that things should be done is that the contract should be a very, like a first party identity construct and primitive when you're dealing in Web3. And then, you know, what we think of uh, as keys and wallets are just like access keys to that. But, you know, the paradigm I'm thinking that should should ship, should change is that the wallet, like software run, should actually just be a contract itself. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you think that'd be for everyday people, like, you know, who are not savvy with, you know, like, like, you know, like, like contract hacks and like all that kind of stuff, but they don't understand yeah. how that, would that be hard for them? So like for those people, I think that if you build, if you design software correctly, they, they won't notice any difference between, you know, like what they're, what they're doing. Right. And so, you know, for example, like things you can do is if you do it correctly, if you design it correctly, is you could have a wallet-based uh, contract identity, you could have a software that has integrated, but then you can actually, actually make it so like, hey, your mobile device, you know, we constantly use mobile devices, there's no kind of way to link a mobile device to, you know, current identity right now, could be an access key onto that contract itself with like limited permissions. And so maybe maybe that in order to do something in mobile, you can say, this mobile device can only do X, Y, and Z, or if transactions are within this price, or within, you know, certain bounds that it can only do it. And then, for example, if your phone gets taken away, you know, you can just be, or if you lose your phone for whatever reason, lose that key, you can then revoke that co- that access key on the contract itself and it would just be like, like nothing happened. Makes sense. Um, okay, well, moving on. Uh, you're obviously a big punk fan. Uh, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh, I saw your Twitter cover photo was Archetypes. What other projects really stand out to you that you really like love or have like, uh, like, you know, like, passion towards, I guess. Yeah, I would say, I'd say Nouns is a big one. Like I was actually a very, very early supporter of Nouns. So like, even before, you know, I, as soon as the project was announced as a concept, I was kind of involved with it at the yeah. very kind of, at the very early stages. And I actually got one of the test Nouns, it's called Computer. And yeah, so I used that as my profile pic for a while. And then it was actually really funny because, you know, as a developer, I'm always on like the test nets and like looking at data. And we had this like scanner that shows like all the NFTs that are like being worked on, like on the blockchain. And all of a sudden I saw some nouns appear up, 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 pop up on, you know, on my screen. I'm like, whoa, what are these? I'm like, oh, the nouns project is actually going forward. And so I started like, you know, learning, like jumping back into it and learning more about it. And then they launched one day and then I was like, oh, hey, this project actually actually launched right in. So I got an early on that one. So I actually own now number three, um, which it was really funny because I bought it. And I thought I bought it at the top because, you know, the price was going down. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I got one, cool. But I actually bought it at the bottom and prices started going yeah, like, ramping yeah. up like, right after that. I saw it. You bought it for like 36 ETH or something, right? And yeah, now yeah. it just went so high after. Yeah. Yeah. And then a the center is selling for like 200, 200. I think they're at like 70 or 80 right now. Yeah. But even like number three is like so, like, you know, it's like that provenance, right? Like just like, yeah. I think the first 100 are going to be so crazy. But like number three is like so, so good now to have. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And then, Anything you know, else? I think the biggest thing about, I think the biggest thing of now is that it's a, just a really interesting experiment in governance. Cause I think governance is a, such a hard thing in web three. And I think now has, you know, really found something that's like really unique and novel. And, you know, I'm really excited to see just kind of like how the community like takes it, especially as it as, as it starts to grow. 
makes sense. Well, out of curiosity, why, you know, it's interesting because we have the PFP projects, right? Like punk, apes, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then we haven't had like a winner, quote unquote, or something that has like stood out for like a cover photo, right? Why, what made you wanted to choose Archetype as a cover photo? Uh, I just thought it was cool, right? So, you know, I started getting into gender of art. And, you know, I think one of the things is that it just like really stood out to me. Uh, well, actually, so the reason why I bought an archetype was uh, uh, Fuckbender. It was like, hey, go buy an archetype. I'm like, what's an archetype? And I looked at it and I'm like, okay, so I bought one. And then I was just like, oh, it's cool. I didn't have a cover photo at the time. And so I just put it as my cover photo. And then after that, one of my good friends, uh, Poria, he's like, I'm going to make you a cover photo with all your PFEs on it. And he created that one for me. And I've just been using that ever since. Got it. Cool. Um, actually, one question I had for you, because I, you know, went and this is for folks who haven't heard your story before, but like one thing you talked about it, like, you know, the way you got in is one of your friends told you to buy an NFT and you bought it for 4,000 and he's like, what, what should we do with this? And you ended up like putting it on sale and it got sold for like 15,000 uh, or 14,000, like right, right away. Right. And, and you were like, whoa, interesting. Right. That was kind of how you you happened. I was looking at that NFT, uh, the like machine part two. Right. And it's interesting because I saw that it got acquired for 40000 after, and then it got transferred to you again. So what was the story yeah. behind that? Uh, so I bought it back. Yeah. Oh, you bought it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I literally just bought it back, right? Yeah. But maybe it makes sense. I bought it. Is it because of yeah. the story, basically? Because the, the, it was the prominence? Yeah, so I guess the, the story was, that was my very first NFT. And after I, after, after it was sold, I was just like, oh, I don't have this anymore, right? It's always just been something I think about all the time. And so I'm also like good friends with the artist now, like Sam Sade, right? I've, had, I've collected a number of his works. And it, you know, I, I felt like for me personally, as somebody who's just like so into NFTs and just deeply believes in what they mean, um, you know, NFTs are more than just, you know, it, it's more than art to me. It's, it's about story, culture, you know, and, you know, part, part of great art, I always felt is a great story. Right. And for me, for my story, that was just like part of like the thing that I needed to do to kind of complete that arc of like, you know, for my journey into NFTs. And so I actually bought the piece like back, like one year after I sold it. And it was really funny because I was just like browsing at the gateway one day, just reminiscing about, you know, that piece. And I saw that it was listed for sale. And so I messaged the, the owner. I was like, hey, are you willing to sell it? And he was like, he was receptive to it. And so, yeah. We worked out a deal and sold it, and then yeah, you know yeah, that's, one, that's back in my position. Yeah, it's one of the things that really stood out to me, even when I was like, you know, uh, listening to your episode and talking about the ten million dollar offer that he declined on the punk was what you said was uh, the reason Patricia gave you that offer was because he believes in you know like there has to be a story behind that that uh, um, that that whatever the, the the collectibles that you're getting right, and it makes a lot of sense, and it's so cool that like I wonder if that's such an interesting. A mental model when you're thinking about like buying something of his, like, historical uh, provenance now, right? Like where you're thinking about like, oh, I want to get this particular piece because you're thinking from that aspect now. We're thinking about the story. How did that whole thing come about? Especially when there is, you know, when you're buying a one-on-one, right? Yeah. You know, but I think it's the same thing in like any sort of like club, club markets, right? I'll just say like baseballs, for example, right? Every single baseball is made the same. But, you know, like let's just say there's a famous baseball player like Bo Jackson who hits his like hundredth hundredth home run. All of a sudden, that baseball becomes way more valuable just because of the story behind it, yep. right? You know, same sort of thing like you know, like Kobe's jersey that he wore on his final game, right? There's a story behind that. That was his final journey. There's probably there's 
there's hundreds of other jerseys just like it, but there's only one that had that experience, right? And has that story behind it. And that story in that story in history is recorded in the provenance of you know pretty much every single digital every item out there. And you know, I think it's 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 the story that really makes things valuable. Makes sense. Do you think that there's ever gonna be, or do you think that it's a it's a natural extension where as we sell our like you know, let's example, let's say if you were selling your um your your um this particular piece, for example, that there be there's a place where you can actually kind of talk about the story and write it why you know or is that do you think that's something that's going to happen moving on? Because it's a good point, right? Where we right now we don't th- we don't see that. It's more like you know. But we don't see that on the listing itself or, or whatever. Whereas like if you were to go to eBay, for example, what you said right now, you would see that there's an option where people write about all about that, right? Like this is what, the first one that Co- or the last one that Kobe wore and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think what we're going to see going forward is, you know, same, same thing you see in art. You're going to have art historians and you're probably going to have like blockchain historians who are going to be able to come uncover these stories. And so one of the big things is, Will there be enough kind of, you know, digital breadcrumbs around that you can tell can fulfill that story? And I think one of the cool things about the internet right now is that, you know, all this data is being recorded. And so there is sort of this like trail that you can start piecing these stories together. It just depends how well they're being preserved and how well they're, they're being accessed for, for how, how accessible they're going to be for, you know, future historians. Makes like I can totally see like blockchain digital forensics being a thing of trying to underscut, undercover you know, the history of some of these digital art pieces in the future, just like we do have for traditional art. Uh, before we move on to Manifold stuff, I just want to ask you one question, which I saw, uh, which I, the line that Gary sa- Gary Tan said on with, with, the, with, the, with your uh, interview with your co-founder, which I, was really interesting. He said, they were, they were talking about the parallels between Web 1 and, and, and uh, Web 3, or the internet and mm-hmm. Web 3, I guess. And he said kind of history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. I'm just kind of trying to. I'm just trying to want to understand like your perspective on like the what's the similarities you're seeing right now with the dot com and Web three. Yeah, so you know, I, th- I think the big thing about the the very first like Web one was it was all about protocols, and so once these protocols came into place, people started building these like really interesting experiences on top of them. All right, and so like you know, I think some of the fundamental protocols I can think of would be you know HTTP, FTP, uh, SMTP for email. Right. And the thing is that all these protocol, protocols were permissionless. Right? Anybody could use them. Anybody can implement them. And it was really just about content delivery back then. Right. And then you can then comes in Web 2.0, where people started building these like server-based experiences that were built on top of the, you know, the protocols, but really created these kind of gated wall gardens where it was now up to the server providers to really enforce you know, their protocols or their kind of like access to these systems. Like let's take let's take Twitter for example, right? Um, so you know, part of my background is I used to work for a company called Hootsuite, and we used to build a Twitter client. And Twitter Hootsuite was built on top of Twitter, right? And you know at the very beginning, Twitter was like we have an open API, anybody can use it, you know. And Hootsuite had built their kind of business off top of this tool, uh, on top of this API, right? And then all of a sudden one day, Twitter was like, no, we're going to close our platform up because the value for Twitter was actually like managing themselves. And so from that, they started like closing up the access. So then Hootsuite had to like really go and like really figure out and determine actual business relationship with Twitter, where now at this point now they have to actually pay Twitter for, for access for some of the tools. Whereas before Twitter was actually paying Hootsuite for, you know, some of their, to build some of these things. And so it just really created this whole thing of like, well, you know, who's really in charge of the platform at that point, right? In this case here, it was Twitter. 
you say the same sort of thing with, uh, you know, other platform, content platforms. Like, you know, when you post something on Twitter or like, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you're, you're giving these platforms an unlimited license to that content, right? And so they can uh, take the content, they can monetize it, you know, show ads beside it on top of it and so on. And there's nothing you can do because you've agreed to that. And so when I think about Web3, Web3 is, is taking things back to the protocol level, right? So now you have these, you know, trustless, permissionless protocols that people can build on top of. Uh, some of them, you know, are very integrated into, you know, like certain properties. But at the end of the day, um, these, these protocols are able to get your guarantee a certain level of trust among creators uh, who are using the protocol. And so, like, you know, how we're seeing this, how we're seeing this kind of manifest is, for example, the NFTs, right? So the concept of the NFT is that the, there's a standard protocol, an interface for an NFT that anybody can have access to, to consume the content of, you know, to, to consume Web3 content and through NFTs. And, you know, if somebody mints an NFT on the network, any sort of platform can go on and take that content and display it on the network in a permissionless manner. On top of that, too, uh, you know, in the case of some of these content creators, they now have ownership over their, their audiences. And so, you know, for example, if a creator issues an NFT um, and that they have control over their sovereignty of the smart contracts and the NFT and all the creativities, uh, the creative aspects of it, they can then take the take their audience and just move them to any platform they want as long as that platform is adding value towards the creative process for that for that owner. And so... We'll be an example yeah, of that. It will be an example of that. So let's say, so let's say, for example, right now, uh, if I had my con, so where would I take my, how, yeah. So yeah, how would that look in real world example? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can, uh, so a project that I worked on was, um, it was, uh, Steve Aoki's Aokiverse. Yep. And so, you know, previously one of the big things is that, you know, let's just say previously, right. And so let's just say you're a band, you're on Facebook and face, you know, your, your whole audience is on Facebook. Right. You're, whenever you want to like talk to them, you like post a message on Facebook and so on, and it gets kind of broadcast to your audience. Uh, Facebook made a change that says, in order for you to do that now, you have to pay us. You have to pay Facebook to do certain things, right? And they just changed the algorithm for how, for how you kind of connect your audience. And so what ended up happening is that, you know, Facebook became this middleman and kind of held ransom a lot of these audiences or a lot of these artists, uh, communities that said that you had to pay us in order to get access to your community that they had built in right. the first place. Right. Right. So with NFTs, what's happened is that now, like Steve Aoki has a direct one-to-one -one, uh, relationship with his, with his audience. So anybody who owns an NFT, he has now has access to, but you know, that being said though, the platform can now, and platforms can now use that information data to create value for Steve Aoki and his audience. But then, you know, it, it, depending where Steve, Steve Aoki is, focuses his attention, he can say, okay, everyone go to this platform. Now, if you have one of my NFTs, you are, you automatically have access. Right. I see. So, so let me have this correct. So, what you're saying is, uh, example would be right now, all everybody who has CVO, like I have a CVO key uh, NFT, so I'm in the Discord with everybody, right? Yeah. But what you're saying is, a CVO key basically can get people to move from there to, I don't know, like his phone number as a random example here, right? So, he can get them to move because he knows exactly who has the NFT, so he can verify that. Whereas, if he wants to get people to move from Facebook, he doesn't know who's who's the who's like really had the was a buyer kind of thing. Is that kind of what you're trying to go with this? Or yeah, so like you know, for example, on Facebook, he actually can't get them to move off Facebook. Right? Sure, yeah, 
but, right. but, the, yeah. but is, it, is that the same challenge with this right now as well? Because for him to move anybody, I see what you mean. So if you were, if he was to put a message to his fans on Facebook, even to get a message delivered to them, he has to pay for advertising, right? So Facebook charges thirty dollars yeah. for a thousand messages, direct messages, right? So I get that point. But even right now, if he's moving people away from Discord, he still has to. He still can't directly get to them, right? Like there is no. Although he can move them somewhere, but how is the direct communication happening to get them to move? Well, I would say the communication, right? So the communication happens on his channels, wherever he wants to go, right? But the value that he's deriving from, you know, delivering to his audience is now, you know, he's able to direct it, right? So he can be like, hey, you have my NFT. You now have access to any sort of platform that I have blessed, right? And you you, you have to do it. You can segregate it. You can segregate who's the buyer and who's not the buyer and how much, what have they bought and whatnot. Got it. Yeah. You like don't have to see. You, know, you have to say you don't have to sign up an account as long as you hold my NFT. You have access to the things that I have worked with these platforms to give you access to. It, it creates the it creates an immersion, whereas previously the power was in the platform and uh, and consumers and creators were kind of building the platform themselves. Where now the power is in the creator, right? And the platforms are consuming the are, are working with the creators in order to consume the content of the creators, right? So it's a, it's an immersion of power. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, makes makes complete sense. Cool. Okay. Uh, I guess keeping on this uh, this concept now, yeah. we should just talk about uh, like you know what you're doing with Manifold because you know you build you're building creator contracts and everything. So I think let's talk about that and explaining quickly explaining folks what what you guys are building in Manifold and then tying this into the creator contracts and, and whatnot. Yeah. So the the mission of Manifold is to enable creative sovereignty, and we do this by by giving creators uh, tools to really navigate Web three and really act in their own interest. And we always say that the, the creator is the platform, right? And so what we're doing, you know, our main tool that we do this with is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a tool called Manifold Studio. And Manifold Studio lets you deploy your own smart contracts and maintain as easy on those contracts. I think one of the big things about, you know, the contracts we deploy is that they're 100% artist owned and controlled, meaning that there is no kind of like platform lock-in, even from us, right? Like our, the tool that we provide is just a, a layer on top of the contracts for any artist to um, any artist to utilize. And so, you know, I always say that we've done our job right is that if Manifold has disappeared of the company, will all the work that we've previously done still be useful and valuable, right? Whereas, you know, if you take other platforms, you know, if sometimes in some cases, if the platform disappears, access to the contract and access to the content on those contracts may also disappear. Cool. So let's, let's see if I have this correctly. So example, in case of like, let's say a big company like OpenSea, it's like when you are deploying an NFT over there, you don't really own that, basically, right? Is that correct? Yeah. So you know, when you're when you're deploying an OpenSea chart contract, OpenSea really has full full access and control to that contract itself, right? And so you can think, you know, an example of you know why this could go bad is in some cases some artists have been deplatformed due to like regulatory reasons in the U.S. And so you know, a very common scenario was that a bunch of Iranian art, artists were deplatformed, and their NFT content was actually deleted from uh, deleted from the metadata, and so collectors who had purchased those NFTs no longer had access to NFTs. Uh, they can view the NFTs on the platform anymore, and the artist had just no like no no provenance on no provenance or record of these NFTs on the platform anymore. Whereas if you deploy it on your own smart contract, you know you have full control over the data on your smart contract and who owns it. Not not who owns it, but full control over pretty much the sovereignty of that contract itself. And so there's nothing that any platform could do. Uh, you know, if they wanted to de-platform you, each platform would have to de-platform you one by one, whereas there is no kind of centralized place that can de-platform the content. 
Yep. So, so in case of a big company like OpenSea, the challenge might be, like you said, you know, some kind of a regulatory pressure or some kind of like, you know, like anything political, whatever can lead to, you know, you being disbarred, right? And then on the other hand, it's a smaller company, they might just go bankrupt. And then what happens then, yeah. right? Like all is gone. So that's where kind of you guys come in and you guys make it so that you got, if, even if you, for whatever reason, you didn't cease to exist, your contract, you can still take it somewhere else kind of thing, right? Yeah, um, you can still take it somewhere else. You can still maintain the fees on this contract. Like everything on the contract is like solid, it's yours. Like Manifold has no ability to change any of the underlying implementation or any of the content on its contracts. Got it. And and then at the same time, correct me if I'm wrong, the goal is still to like take care of the, you know, the things, example, if I'm not a, if I'm not a tech person or engineer, I can still, you, we're still using everything. You're still doing, making it easy for any, anybody to be able to use that without worrying about, without worrying about the backend stuff, but at the same time, making it so that eventually they can move it away if needed. Yeah. And so like, you know, there's two, there's two parts of Manifold. So one part we have, you know, the tools, which is like Manifold Studio. We also have kind of a bunch of dev tools that we're building and providing to the community. So other developers have come out and started building their own NFT experiences on top of all the tooling that we've created. Yeah. An example of this is uh, actually, so just yesterday we announced uh, Christie's 3.0. And so Christie's 3.0 is our NFT, uh, the Web3 offering for digital assets. And so that was built on top of uh, Manifold tools. Very cool. And and I guess my next question was this, like, what are some of the uh, new things that you guys are building or seeing or like, yeah, like the tools that you guys are kind of in, uh, in progress right now? Yeah. So I think, I think one of the big things about NFTs is that, you know, to me, NFTs are a brand new medium of expression and we haven't really fully explored what that means. And so I guess for the last year, a lot of the NFTs have always been like tokenized images and video, but we really haven't gotten into like, you know, what smart contracts, what smart, what smart contracts can do as art when they integrate, you know, the artwork into the smart contract itself. And so, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more kind of like interesting use cases of, you know, it's in our, in our section of how do you make the smart contract data be reactive to the artwork and vice versa. And how do you make, you know, multi-system smart contracts uh, you know, be more expressive as part of the artwork itself. Very cool. Um, I heard you say that, you know, one of the things that uh, you guys do is work with bigger artists to kind of uh, collaborate with them to kind of, uh, or to kind of learn more about what, uh, but making better product decisions, right? So what are these pain points these guys are feeling that kind of helps figuring out what other people might need and then kind of building that templates for them, right? Um, what yeah. are some of the pain points that you're seeing right now um, that or have seen in the past that, that are very obvious right now that uh, with 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 artists and who are not as technical. Yeah, so I, th I think one of the big things is like selling NFTs is still pretty hard for most artists, right? They, there is only like a few options for doing so, and so I think one of the cool things uh, that we've created is these things called claim pages, and so what they what they pretty much are are the ability to sell editions just completely on your own smart contract uh, without the need of any platform. And so what happens is um, an artist can go in there, they can create a claim page, and then pretty much it's an open edition that they're able to, you know, send a link to somebody and that they send a link to somebody that can then that they can then mint from those contracts. And you know, so we've created this in kind of an open framework. We built this on top of our own tooling. And so we have our own kind of standard version of this, but then any developer can come in and create their own like version on top of that too, that has their own like unique mechanics and built on top of it. 
Uh, you don't charge creators right now for deploying their own contract, right? Uh, nope, everything's free. So, yeah. so how do you, uh, is monetization like a longer term play, not worrying about right now? So, you know, our, our whole thing has been, our whole thinking in Web3 is that because everything is kind of a permissionless system, uh, you know, the whole, the whole fee thing is a race to zero in general. I mean, you've kind of already seen this already, right? You know, like foundation started off at 15%. Everyone's like, no, you're charging too much, right? And then it comes down to 5%. And you have other marketplaces coming up and they're like, oh, we're like 0.5%. Yeah. You have some marketplaces that are like 0.01%, right? And, you know, even places like, I think like Pseudosoft is saying that they have like zero fees or like, I guess like zero creator royalties, which, you know, clearly created a stir. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, a marketplace, marketplaces and sales platforms are going to just trend towards zero as things become more competitive, you know? And so for us, we're like, why don't we just take, take the conversation to where it's going to go in the future, right? And the way we kind of work right now is the monetization part for Manifold as a business is done in the collaboration side of things. And so if an artist really wants to work on something like very bespoke, very bespoke, then we kind of work with them on a hardship basis to like figure out you know, what is a proper business model for the project and how do we support each other from that perspective? Very cool. Makes a lot of sense. So kind of like onboarding the general people for free, let's let, let make that happen. But at the same time, if, if you are like an artist who's obviously going to be successful and are going to do a lot of sales, you work with them, you know, get fees from them and that kind of helps you propel uh, the, yeah. the company basically. Yeah. Cool. Uh, how do you think about security for your clients? Like I'm mean, a security company, so I got to ask you that question. Yeah. So, you know, I think security is, most, is usually the most like paramount thing. Uh, we, I've worked with a lot of artists who have had security issues, you know, and it's always after the fact, we're like, oh my God, you know, my wallet just got drained, help me figure out what happened, right? And it's usually always like, you know, always the same sort of like setup for, you know, there is something insecure, they were using a hardware wallet, they clicked a bad link, right? And so, you know, I think that when it comes down to security, I think the, the fundamentals of security are very easy, but it's hard to like, you know, make sure you, you understand the practice, right? And so, you know, when it comes down to, you know, working with artists and make sure things are secure, it's always, you know, make sure you use a hardware wallet. Um, make sure your seed phrase is properly protected. has never been typed into keyboard that you actually have like a physical copy and that physical copy is stored with redundancy. And then on top of that too, um, just making sure that you understand how, how to navigate the blockchain correctly. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are just like, very into like, just like, oh my God, I do something fast. <laughs> so I guess like, you know, push this transaction through, but you know, it's really just making sure that you understand, you know, whenever you do something on blockchain, that what you're doing is irrevocable and irreversible. And so, you know, a lot of people, it's just haven't gotten in their head that, you know, blockchain, blockchain transactions are forever and make sure you, you, you know what you're doing first. Uh, we also have some initiatives to like really protect, uh, that we're creating to kind of like help with security. So I think what we put like uh, an EIP in for, you know, delegating access to another wallet and providing secure auth for, so you don't have to have to sign stuff with your, your main wallet. So like, you know, we're, we're really focused on security because we, we underline that we, we understand that, you know, a network is only as good as, as a security. Yeah. And, and I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, like obviously like the, you know, the, the template contracts that you guys have, that's obviously, you know, you, 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 you have that security built in for everyday people, but when people are customizing the code at that point, they're their own risk kind of thing. If they're not like, if you're not looking at it kind of thing, is that correct? 
Yeah. So the, the, the base medical contract, the medical career contract is, you know, it's all open source. It has been audited by professional security firms. And so we're very confident in that, but of course, you know, there are, you know, whenever you change some sort of code, there's always risk of introducing bugs or security issues. Right. And so that's, you know, we, we help people like review code, but it's up to them at the end of the day to make sure the code is like actually secure. Are there, which teams or individuals are you seeing who are pushing the boundaries of smart contracts? So I, I, I think the first one I say, I, you know, I, I think the Nouns team is really pushing the boundaries of that. Uh, you know, the, the, the guys in the Nouns team has really pushed like, you know, what it means for governance within uh, within the system and DAOs. Um, see who else is there. Really impressed with uh, Syndicate DAO, you know, how they're kind of like creating infrastructure for DAOs to like form online and manage, you know, all those sort of things. Uh, let's see. Gnosis Safe has always been one of my favorites, you know, very trusted smart contracts. Um, just very well designed too. Oh, uh, Paradigm is also, you know, Paradigm Research has always been like really good at pushing innovation or pushing innovation forward with smart contracts. Actually, here's an interesting yeah. question because I'm thinking this from, it's, it's a curious uh, curiosity standard. Like, um, like, you know, being a engineer obviously you you know like you think about these things so much whenever you know you're looking at a contract or any 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 new product is coming out you're probably digging down deeper and signing the code right i'm just yeah. curious are there any uh are there any like companies not like in very like technical companies like you talk about gnosis and whatnot but like more like like more like community driven projects right whether it's a pfe project or whatever uh where when you see when you see what they're doing with, with smart contracts or code that just really stands out to you mm. Well, it's funny because like most PFP communities are just using the same contract over and over again. Like not really. <laughs> they're all just like they're all just copy pasting all the same con contracts with like slight modifications. Yeah. Uh, for most PFE communities. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Because I feel like at that point, do you think of them as more of a business play? Uh, these PFP communities more than actually pushing the boundaries of the tech of the tech. Well, yeah, so I always thought that there's you know when I think about NFT projects, I always think that there's three parts to it. So one of them is you have the technology, you have the art. And then you have the community itself. And so I find that a lot, there's, okay, there's, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of shitty art out there, right? And a lot of these like PFP communities are not using anything innovative on the smart contract side of things. They're just using the, you know, very basic smart contracts. And so really, there's really just community driven projects at the end of the day. And so, like, you know, I think that the one of the hard parts of that though is that, Community-driven projects are only strong as the community members in it, and most of the community members are in their projects just because of the price point or, like you know, like the floor price of love the community itself, right? So I think that's like a hard part. I find that the the best communities are the ones driven by artists themselves, because at the end of the day, artists, you know, for artists, these are their livelihoods. Like they were doing art before NFTs, they're going to be doing art after NFTs, you know, during the whole way through, right? And I found that those are the strongest communities too, because, you know, at the heart of it, you have one central figure who is like, I'm going to build this community. And these artists, you know, I, I work with a lot of artists, these artists are constantly looking for ways to use, utilize this technology. And, you know, I think that like artists driven communities and the projects driven by artists are just going to be the ones that are going to last at the end of the day. Um, but but uh, how do you think about communities from, from somebody who's very technical, right? So, you know, I, I totally understand, like, you know, from someone like me, like I would, you know, like would think about communities first, right? And like you said, tech is all, you know, it's all pretty similar, right? 
from someone like you who's who more tech like who thinks more about the tech than I'm guessing about the community what are you, what's your stance on the communities of these projects and how do you think they will kind of adapt or how they would go basically so you know for me the best technology is always the one that fades in the background and so for me at the end of the day when you come back when it comes back to building product it's like you know is the product a good experience right in some cases the communities are the products that are being kind of sold or marketed right and I think as long as you can develop a good experience for, you know, the people who are part of the community, I think that's like the most important thing, right? Because, you know, you can have the most amazing tech, but if nobody, it doesn't create a good experience or a good product, then, you know, it's just tech for the sake of tech. But, you know, it, the best kind of projects I find are the ones that are able to take, you know, technical innovation and wrap a good experience around it, whether it comes from like, uh, like marketing or community or other kind of products like built around it. Makes sense. Um, where do you think we are going with smart contract utility in the context of art? So, yeah, like as I mentioned before, I think we're going to see more and more like innovation, like more innovative contracts. Um, like, as I mentioned before, like most, most people are just thinking of NFT art as, you know, images and video just being tokenized. But there's a whole realm of, you know, data-based art that is, you know, that is yet to be explored, I think. You know, I think Artblocks is a good kind of, is a good example of that. You know, Artblocks is, you know, it's a renderer that takes, you know, data to generate generate the images, right? And so, like, that's, like, one example. But I think we're just going to get more and more deeper, right? And so imagine you can start having, like, entire programs beyond the blockchain itself that are able to generate kind of, like, really unique art experiences. And then, you know, you can have to to token communities as if you, if you hold one of these things, there could be, like, a real live installation, whereas if you are a token holder, if you walk into this thing, your, it recognizes you and it creates a whole experience for you, like in this space. You know, things like that. There's like a whole bunch of innovation to be had, you know, in real life and on the blockchain. Uh, last question regarding this, uh, sure. this kind of um, um, topic is, you know, you have some heavy hitting partners, including Christie, Sotheby's, Philips. Uh, why, what, why do, you, do these organizations chose to partner with Manifold? I think, uh, so at the end of the day, we've always been artists first. Right. And artists, the reason why I'm being artists first is that we believe that, you know, the artists are, the art is art and the artists are the most important foundational building blocks for, for, uh, for the space. And, you know, we always want to partner with people who actually have that kind of mindset of putting artists first, because, you know, at the end of the day, if you, if you really focus on the price of things, that's kind of like a dead end because it's because it's very speculative as you saw with the PP market. Yep. But, you know, as I mentioned before, artists are, you know, first and foremost, you know, first-class citizens in the NFT world. And, you know, to me, they are, like, you know, like I said, the most important. Awesome. Last two questions, and then we'll move to rapid fire. So number sure. one, I just I want to get your thought on um, NFT market as a whole or, or crypto in general as a whole right now. Where are we? Like, just like a future. How do you think, how do you, how do you think about it right now? And where are we headed? Yeah. So I, I, I think the very first thing was um, the... I think last year, I think the, the thing that really made things go crazy with the whole PFP market, but that was really built us off of speculation itself. And we're seeing the after effects of now, you know, everyone just threw money in the PFPs because, you know, prices are going up. And now that the, you know, the money's dried up, or I guess now that the activity has dried up, people are kind of shying away from PFPs in general. But, you know, we are seeing a huge renaissance in art of digital art right now, right? I mean, like Tyler Hobbs just did a drop, uh, you know, with his QQ. Well, yeah. And I think he sold... I think he sold like 17 million, million yep. right? So, 
you know, there's still a big market there for like the artists who are willing to like put the work in and say, and I think that's just going to trickle down more and more as people like understand like, oh, art, art is the foundational uh, building block for the NFT market right now. Right. And we're still seeing, you know, at Manifold, we're still seeing a lot of success of artists just doing like drops of artists art. And so I think we're in that phase right now of all of the kind of like low quality projects are now kind of like, you know, underwater now we're seeing, you know, the people who are really, really willing to stay and build kind of rise up. I think we're going to see another renaissance of, you know, just art in general. But on top of that too, we're going to see another UK of NFTs are just like more consumer focused and not just, you know, not just for, you know, collectors themselves. I think it's going to be um, <clears throat> an onboarding of people who are in the gaming industry, in the gaming space, or even like the music space. Because they have like very wide reaches, but uh, Web3 hasn't quite gotten that far yet in the, in the, from a technology standpoint. We both are from Vancouver. Like, what are you seeing as one, like just like, you know, in our city, like what kind of um, adoption you're seeing with crypto and NFTs and also in general, Canada? Yeah, well, I, I think what you're seeing about Vancouver is like Vancouver is kind of the birthplace of Web3 because, you know, you have Dapper Labs here and, you know, the ERC721 was created out of Dapper Labs for CryptoKitties. And so, you know, and on top of that, you have some of the biggest digital artists, you know, with like Fuckrender, Victor Mascara. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of like Web3 companies here, just like powerhouse Web3 companies. And so, you know, I think that Vancouver is very well positioned from, you know, a technology innovation point of view for Web3. Um, Canada, I can't really speak a whole lot on. Like, it's hard because, you know, I just haven't been to other places where Web3 has been a big part of the, the ecosystem there. But I can say that there is quite a bit of, I guess, like energy in Vancouver when it comes to Web3. Love that. Awesome, man. Let's move to rapid fire. Yeah. Favorite, favorite PFP collection other than punks? Oh, uh, nouns. Which upcoming artist would you like to spotlight? Diana Sinclair. Favorite Twitter accounts? Favorite Twitter accounts? Uh, Richard Intern. Oh, come on. Okay, fair. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, brand, individual, or team you would like to see in Web3? Oh, I think like a Supreme or like Team Lab. Advice to new artists or builders of teams entering Web3? I think the thing is just like be really authentic, right? Say true to, true to your values. And like, don't try to build for what the market is, right? Try to build for yourself. Because if you build for the market, you'll never be authentic. And I think like authenticity in Web3 is one of the most important things. Very amazing answer. Uh, last one, one prediction for 2023. Uh, ETH price will go up. <laughs> you know, what we had a, we had the question uh, in the early, when we came up with the rapid fire, there was one question, ETH price prediction in 2023. And we're like, we don't want to do that with asking people about pricing because it's kind of like putting them on the spot and they're like, I don't want to say that. But it's cool that he said ETH price will go up. That was like, yeah. our, everyone's happy. Everyone that's pretty sure likes that. <laughs> awesome, man. Uh, where cool. can people find you and learn more? Uh, about you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at Richard, R-I-C-H-E-R-D. And then you can also find me at Manifold, uh, at Manifold.xyz. Perfect. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This channel is intended purely for educational purposes and does not constitute financial or tax advice.